She's the notorious Suji Kwaklo Kim, Franny Choi. <laughs> and they're the editor-in-chief of Quarantine Vogue, Denise Smith. <laughs> and you're listening to Verses, the podcast where poets confront the ideas that move them. Hiya, Dennis. <laughs> Hi, Franny. How you doing, girl? I'm doing okay. You know, here we are at the end of um, at the end of so much. <laughs> wow, at the end of this decade known as 2020, this <laughs> glitch in the simulation called 2020, the long march of 2020, the long, the long march. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and we're also at the end of uh, season four of Versus. I mean, I'm just so amazed that we have been able to keep making this show from the comfort of our homes it's really cool <laughs> yeah it is really cool i mean yeah like it's like marilyn chin was in my bedroom you know in a way. <laughs> yeah she was no she was <laughs> <laughs> and it's nice to have um at least these like small moments of beauty in a year that's also brought us so much loneliness and pain and turbulence but also hopefully some justice comes out of this year too right hopefully some change um but fuck it's been long (laughs) it's been so long and you know i think that for us recording the show has been a solidifying and grounding Mm -hmm. practice amid all of the fucking turmoil and we hope that listening to it has been something like that for you and just glad that you have stuck it out with us. And also, if you, if this is the episode where you're listening for the first time, like, welcome. <laughs> like, welcome to Versus. Welcome. And like, welcome. Yeah. And there's like a lot of other episodes that you can check out. We recorded 22 this year, many of which were post-lockdown. So, welcome to Versus. <laughs> and we hope that you'll you'll um, hang out with us for one more season, actually. Yes. There was a big question earlier this year about whether we would continue being able to make this show for various reasons, actually not having to do with COVID, but more having to do with uprisings for racial justice happening all over the country. Some of the ways that poets, us included, were trying to hold the Poetry Foundation accountable, all of which is to say we are at least going to be here for another season in 2021. And um, we'll have some more information about what that will actually look like at the top of the new year. But for now, just know that there's more verses in your future. Um, it was an important year, I think, for us to like, you know, question um, or revisit why we do this thing um, that we love and why and um, what it means to do it within the institution and that we do it within. And yeah, yeah, like Freddie said, we'll have we'll have news and updates coming in the new year about verses and about many other exciting things. Yeah. Um, but also, you know, if it's not your first time here, thank y'all for coming through this season. It was it was a, such a different season for any, you know, we didn't have to travel just like behind the scenes. We normally in the before time, we're doing like four or five interviews in a weekend. And so we would mm-hmm. kind of go out like these like little like poetry rushes of like <laughs> asking folks mm-hmm. about their work. Um, and so it's been a little different this year to like, you know, kind of have versus feel like a regular part of the week. It's been a very different year for us. Freddie, I'm wondering for you in this like very different season, what's been maybe one of your highlights? One of my favorite things about this year of Versus was doing that mailbag episode 
where mm. we sent questions and prompts out into the universe. And you, our listeners, responded and like wrote things to our prompts and asked us questions. And we got to like hear your voices from everywhere, including like seven British women. <laughs> like it was really <laughs> cool. <laughs> so um, yeah, that was, I think was like one of the most magical moments. And I hope it's something that I hope that we keep doing in future seasons. That was such a, a blessed moment. And I'm and like, y'all are like good ass writers. You know, it makes me want to like interview the whole yeah. world. Um, but I think another moment that I really loved personally, um, when I was thinking back on 2020 and even what I've read this year and truly loved, and so many of our guests released such brilliant books. But I like was sitting with um Erica Foreman's book, mm. uh Saw Body Shimmer for a little bit the other day. And I was just like, wow, I really loved this book. And I really loved that interview. And yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and so um I was just like just sent a special moment of appreciation out to Erica Foreman um, for Saw Body Shimmer, who was just like one of the books that for me was like a standout collection of what I read this year. Yeah, and so many more. I mean, John Mario's motherfucking book. Oh my God. I mean, that interview, like so many brilliant folks like blessed us um, both on the page and on the mic this year. So thank you to everybody. You know what else I loved is was listening to the conversation that you had with Michael Lee. That was also Aww. another really good one. I was like, I got to listen to verses. Yeah. <laughs> no, really- I like listen. That's how I felt to listen to you and Cam. I was like, oh, look at this like sweet little intimate moment. I can't wait to like, you know, be riding around with like y'all's kid and like play. Like, <laughs> you want to you hear your parents talk? <laughs> oh my goodness. They're yeah. smart. Look at them. Look at them. <laughs> well, also, you know, as we move into the end of the year, what about outside of verses? What's like one particularly cute moment that you are holding on to as you move towards the end of 2020 i'm scared to like make my family sick but i also feel very connected to my family in Mm -hmm. a way and it actually has been very moving to like feel that there could be growth in relationships that are even decades long and you know i've been like like proud of like you know watching like my mom like step more into like her womanhood, you know, in many ways. So I don't know, just like being able to like look at them, you know, even sometimes from like a six foot distance um, mm-hmm. a lot this year. I've been like, yeah, like really grateful to my family, to the women in my family. And I'm like grateful to like, you know, the slowness or the weirdness of the year for being able to slow down and look at them a little bit longer. Yeah. So that's been good. How about you? I would say teaching. I taught a um, like a creative writing seminar at Williams in the spring and it was like a very stressful and weird thing to really suddenly switch to remote learning Mm -hmm. but my students were such champs and they were so locked in and they like I think a few of them said like having poetry writing space was a thing that held them down Mm -hmm. um in the context of all that chaos but it just like totally was for me as well and Mm -hmm. um we had like a final reading on instagram live and it was just like so great it was so cute and everyone did such an amazing job and Mm. shout out to the students in english 288 um yeah you helped make that semester a really good one actually i feel like i gotta be a good parent too big shout out to my students yeah no my kids are good they're all I, they're not even kids they're, they're full-grown adults but they're my kids um but no they're so good you know and i feel my heart goes out to all the students i know these um digital semesters have been rough for those of us who didn't necessarily plan or opt for that type of education uh, but on both sides of the coin uh, students and teachers um so shout out to everybody may we all find 
still the goodness um, that we hope we can find in the classroom and these in these Zoom meetings and shit. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of teaching and students, um, our guest is one who has worked with a lot of students um, and uh, also who, you know, in the similar spirit of us trying to re- remember to count the things that we um, are grateful for over the last year, I think is a real thought leader in how to continue to cultivate hope in the midst of what seems like overwhelming and all-crushing despair. Um, Naomi Shihab Nye is one of the first poets that I ever taught, and she has just been a beacon for me and for so many people. So we're so excited to get to um, share this interview with Naomi Shihab Nye. Naomi Shihab Nye, the Young People's Poet Laureate of the U.S. through the Poetry Foundation, was born to a Palestinian father and American mother and grew up in Ferguson, Missouri, Jerusalem, and San Antonio. Recently, she was the New York Times Magazine Poetry Editor for more than a year. In 2020, she received the Ivan Sandoff Award for Lifetime Achievement from the National Book Critics Circle. She is the author or editor of more than 30 volumes, including City Secrets, Habibi, The Turtle of Oman and The Tiny Journalist, which advocates for justice for Palestinian people. The book received the top poetry prize in 2020 from both the Texas Institute of Letters and the Writers League of Texas. Naomi is so gracious um, in her work, um, in her spirit, and in this interview with us, we are so excited for y'all and all of and us shit too, shit, we were geeked, uh, to spend this last episode of the season with literal legend Naomi Shihab Nye, and we are going to start this hour off with a poem. Mothers waiting for their sons. One boy on the horizon. A boy is a mountain. Mother waiting for the moment when his face comes into sight. He's dubious about so much hugging now, but the hands Clutched together, mother and son, still a perfect fit, like a mountain when you sit on it. Hmm. Oh, wow. <laughs> like a mountain when you sit on it. Oh, I need. To, hmm. Yeah, I don't think I ever read that out loud. I, hmm. I just feel so inspired to be with you both today. I feel like reading some different things. Um, why don't you read that one out loud? It's so it's so good in the yeah. air. I don't know. You know, you get in these habits of people will ask you to read certain things or you feel certain poems are befrienders that people mm. respond to them easily. So you get in the habit of reading those. But I really prefer whenever possible to read, you know, new things or things I don't read or scrappy things, reckless things, things that aren't polished yet. Mm. Yeah. You have so much stuff, too. I mean, we're talking about over like 30 books. Like, how, do you often find yourself um, diving into that archive and just like seeing like, what did I do? And um, I guess how long do you hold a book in your memory and with yourself before you sort of let it go? Oh, what a great question. Um, you know, I often don't dive into my own older books unless someone brings something up. They ask a question about an older poem. And I barely even remember the poem, so I have to go look it up. Or um, just yesterday, a friend was writing me from Honolulu, and he he had a bad experience with his car this week. And 
I was saying, well, did you ever read my essay from like 25 years ago called Used Cars on Oahu? And he said, no. And so I went and looked it up and told him where it was, what page it was on, where to find it. But, you know, in those cases, my memory might be jarred. But usually I'm, you know, just like a kid is interested in what's trying to work itself out on the page, new mm-hmm. stuff. And- yeah. Um, well, Naomi, we often ask this question to our guest, what's moving you these days? So Naomi Shihabnai, first of all, thank you for being here. It's like such an incredible like honor and gift. It's and a huge honor to me. Thank you for wanting me to come. Are Thank you kidding? Inviting me. <laughs> Are you oh kidding? This gosh. is like having. I'm so lucky. This is like having Beyonce on here. It's just like. No, you know. <laughs> no. I'm the one with two stars. I'm the sidekick. You're the two stars. <laughs> oh. I love geez. your voices. I love your total, utter authenticity, both of you. You're just such amazing poets and people. Um, what's moving me these days? You know, really, there is no better question probably in the whole world. I'm very moved by being with the earth, like digging in the ground right now in Texas, where I live in San Antonio, Texas. I'm raking up some beds. I still have beautiful lettuce billowing that I like to go out and pick and water and tend and um, herbs and some tomatoes I hope will still have a chance to ripen. But being with the dirt, being with the earth, um, messing around with dried leaves, I find it very moving because we've had so much time to be with the earth mm-hmm. in the last six, eight months. I mean, if we're lucky enough to have a tiny bit of earth, even one pot plant, spending time with it has a really different feeling, I think. Mm. We were just staying with it a lot. And so that has been moving to me. And also to love our beautiful, wonderful four-year-old grandson is feeling toward being with the earth, being Mm. with dirt. He likes digging more than I do. I'm not so wild about digging as he is. (laughs) I mean, he would just dig holes everywhere. What can we plant today? And He notices everything about, you know, I moved a plant last week from the front bed to the back bed because it didn't seem happy in the front. And he noticed it right away. And he leaned down to it and said, hello, little buddy. How did you get here? Oh, and I thought that's that's so beautiful. That is a poem. And and just the little things that he says all the time. That's my other most moving thing is spending time with him and listening to him, talking with him. Hmm. And I've always been a person who worked with kids. Mm -hmm. And so I was always, you know, being moved by their lines, their poems, their images, but copying down the lines of a four-year-old, really there could be nothing more delicious. So that's moving me. And right now he's at like a peak moment of saying incredible things. Hmm. So I'll just tell you two from two days ago, we were out in the yard and somehow ghosts came up because it was a little foggy. Mm -hmm. And we'd also been talking earlier about protein because his dad, my son is a real protein fiend. (laughs) You know, one of those people who doesn't want to eat anything unless it has a lot of protein in it. (laughs) And I vegetarian always say when people ask me, how do you get your protein? I say, I don't, I don't want any protein. I don't believe in protein. (laughs) Take it away. I'll eat some nuts here you know, a few legumes, but I'm not that interested. I like eggs. I do eat eggs. Anyway, 
I'm like, we need you to have your yogurt. We need. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Connor said, just out of the out of the blue, we're just digging in the yard, and he looks at me and he said, "What do ghosts eat for protein?" <laughs> and then there was a pause, and then he said, "Candles." Oh I thought God. that was incredible. Ghosts eat candles. Wow. I mean, something has to eat candles because candles disappear, right? Oh my God. I love that. So good. And then in the middle of the night, he spends the night here at least once a week. In the middle of the night, he woke up and he calls me Momo. And he said, Momo? And I said, Yes. He said, I love you more than all my toys. Oh, that's a big deal. Right back asleep. (laughs) Yeah, it's a huge deal. So that's what moves me just simple language and being with the earth. As somebody who has read your poems for a while, like that makes complete sense. I don't know. That seems to be what your poems have been moved by for mm. so long. I, I'm just thinking about. Um, I'm thinking about um, one boy told me the the poem where you take um, yeah, what your what exactly. your son said. You know, yeah, exactly. And it's so beautiful. I mean, I just read that poem this morning, and to. Now hear you talk about your grandson um, offering these amazing lines. It's just wild. It's like such a beautiful thing to see that next generation of like the poem that I that I like am in love with. <laughs> yeah. Up. Oh, that's so that's so kind of you to say. It is a sort of language legacy. Hmm. You know, maybe I should write one grandson told me now. <laughs> of course, as we know from time and our own experiences, that kind of magical metaphor in many people's lives Mm. is a short-lived magical period. Mm -hmm. But for poets, we try to maintain, you know, as William Stafford used to say, we try to keep that early poet alive in us. Mm -hmm. We keep stirring up that compost of metaphor inside possibility, inside words, inside our heads, our dreams. But if we have a chance to be with kids and hear how they speak, that can really revive us. And I do think freshening is involved too, Mm -hmm. because I think during the pandemic and all the isolation, we need to be refreshed Mm. in different ways. Yeah. Where do you think that dies for a lot of us? Where do we stop being poets? Um, I mean, you work with so many young people too. Is there an age or a time or a happening that you see language sort of starting to die in kids? Well, I know some people would say middle school, but last week, I did a workshop with middle school age kids in nine different states through the Arab American National Museum. And they were the most beautiful kids, the most metaphorical. I mean, they were as magical as Connor is. Mm. And I don't think I could say middle school right now. I would say when people become too self-conscious to welcome it. Mm. But refreshment. I'm curious what both of you have done for your refreshment. Like, do you have... Some special thing. Oh, man. For the refreshment of language. You know, I have noticed, um, especially during the second half of the pandemic, I've been living by myself um, before I was with a partner. Um, I have been taking more time with like places where I just sort of take language for granted, Um, like in emails and texts and stuff like that. I see myself kind of getting a little bit more artful and articulate and maybe a little bit stranger um, because I think it feels like I'm not 
using language as much anymore. And so, you know, I'm not talking to strangers, not reading random things all around the city. You know, like I'm so used to traveling too. And that I think there's so much language and talking involved in that. And so I'm trying to find like, okay, where are the places if I'm talking less, like, does that actually like concentrate my language? And so I feel like it's sort of getting richer, right? Ooh. And so I have been thinking, like, oh, yeah. let me actually take my time, like, do I, as I type this like paragraph text to a friend and like think about what I can do in here and like how I can like mm. you know be particular for them and particular for us. And so I think that's been a kind of refreshment is like finding the like sort of poetry and like the language that I don't normally think about it as, right? That's very inspiring. I love that. I do yeah. too. Because sometimes it's the only writing I'm going to do that day. I'm not going to write a poem every day. So sometimes I'm like, my opportunity to get it off is this email. <laughs> right. Well, lucky recipients. Lucky recipients. That's beautiful. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I think that for me, it's been reading poems outside of very contemporary American poems. So like work uh-huh. in translation or work of a different era. Because I think that it's it's been wild to be moved by poets of the early Soviet Union. Uh, yeah, I, I I sort of like forget that there are no limits to the things that we can say. And sometimes I feel like it takes somebody who wrote like 100 years ago to remind me that I can say anything, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Wow. Especially like people who are writing under such intense state suppression and like yes. the wildness of that. Mm-hmm. Like if they, if, if you know, Anna Akhmatova can write this incredible line while, you know, dealing with the suppression of the Soviet Union, then like surely I, who's just like maybe tired from (laughs) being on Zoom for a few hours, like surely I can do something, like make something Mm. wild happen. That's that's wonderful. Yeah, I always felt just what you're saying about people like Nazim Hikmet from Turkey. Like if he could get out of prison and write that poem or write another poem in prison, what is wrong with us? Let's guess. Go. We have no complaints. Right. Um, you know, that great, great poem. I've read it a million times. Things I didn't know I loved. Hmm. And that feeling of, you know, expansive affection for the world. I think reading poets from other times and places gives us that appreciation back. Yeah. Are there other poets who you're going to for that these days? So many, so, so, so many. Um, I've found myself reading the great Palestinian Mahmoud Darwish with kind of a different sense of comprehension of his many, many decades of exile, Mm. because I think so many people in the world feel kind of just an exile from normalcy, from Mm. their regular lives, from all the stuff they used to do. So when you read about exile or containment, from someone who really grappled with that as a central theme of so much of his work. Um, He has felt very close during all this time. And this morning, a beautiful thing happened. Someone I've known a long time sent me a poem by a poet I've loved for maybe 30 years. I'm not sure I'm going to say her name right. Farouk, Farouk Zad from Iran. And I've loved her poems. I think I included one in my Middle East anthology some years ago, but my old friend sent me this poem called Window. And she said she was very, very moved by this poem, reading it. And I'll just read you two lines from it. One window is enough for me. 
a window onto the moment of awareness and seeing and silence. Mm. Um, and I know this poet lived through all kinds of struggle and trauma during her short life. So reading people I loved for a long time, but reading them during a different time takes on more meaning. Mm. I want to ask a little bit about that, um, you know, that deep attention that is it Farouk Saad? That, yes, I think mm -hmm. that's how I pronounce it. Yeah, yeah um, that that poet exhibited. Yeah, I guess maybe the word is something like despite all of the horrors of of the world around them, like what is the relationship between those two things? The like imperative to pay close attention and the like horror of the reality that you might be paying attention to. Like, mm. I think like the non-poet part of my brain says, oh, wouldn't you want to like stop paying attention? And then the poet part of my brain says, no, but that's the thing that you have to be most attentive to. Well, I, and I love how you're referring to those different parts of the brain. And, you know, I sometimes think about the part of my brain that's responding to the news every day, mm -hmm. and then the part that's responding to the poems I'm reading, and mm. how when I start feeling really exhausted on the news channel of my brain, then I need to give more time to the awareness poem part. You know, I think it doesn't take as much effort to regenerate our aware spirit in the poem part. Mm as some people think it does, you know, people make all kinds of comments about resistances to poetry. Well, like, but look at the world. It's so messed up. Look at all our problems. And, you know, how can we possibly give ourselves that little luxury of basking in a poem? And, you know, my instinct would be, well, that's, that's why you need it because mm. you're overwhelmed with all this other stuff. You know, you deserve the poem part more mm. and you just, you cultivate that feeling of awareness, you know, where do you go to sit and read something? Can you close your eyes and give yourself a little silence before you read it and give yourself some silence after you read it? Can you stop feeling so compulsive, please? Hmm. I mean, that's something I've always dealt with, like just the compulsion of every day. Oh, well, I can't really work on my writing until I wash those dishes and, you know, clean up the joint. Um, but really, you can. And figuring out how to recalibrate all the tugs on you from different directions. Mm. Um, I, I, I guess we're forever in a process of figuring that out. Um, you know, we, we really require a little more of our time with beauty, mm. beauty of language, creative enterprise. Mm -hmm creative joy and discovery. Sometimes our grandson will just look at me in the course of a day and he'll say, I need to paint. <laughs> no, it's, it's never, it's I urgent. want to paint. It's urgent. Yeah, it's now. <laughs> it's like, get the water because he likes watercolor. So I race to get the water. It's like, okay, where's the paper? Let's go. Look. And I just like that sense that a child has a, a need. Mm -hmm. You know, I need to be with, with colors right now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What, what is that like as we get older? So back to that question of when we lose that poet self, that poet joy with language, 
I think many times it's when we become too dutiful hmm. to practice at talking ourselves out of it. Hmm. Too much saying, oh, I don't have time for that. And nobody can get away with that with me anymore in a poetry session because I'll say, you know what? How much time does a poem take? You can sit down in three minutes, read a poem, and in two minutes, read it again. In five minutes, you could have a doubled experience with the poem. And you can write lines, give yourself one minute per line. You, you don't even have to think in terms of poems. You can't use the time excuse hmm. because you do have that time. We all have that time. Hmm. It's a question of respecting those tiny increments. Hmm. And I think that's one thing that poems help us um, respect more, those tiny increments. Hmm. I love that your interview with Paige Lewis. Yeah. Oh, Shout yeah. out legend Paige Lewis. <laughs> That was yummy. That was such a great interview talking about tininess and mm-hmm. tiny things. Naomi, I'm or Miss Naomi, I should say. Um, no, I'm one, just Naomi. I'm, 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 <laughs> my grandma's smacking me on the back of the head right now. Um, <laughs> I wish I knew her. Oh, oh, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> Give me some pointers. <laughs> no, she's great. Um, I love my grandma. She's a little stern lady. I need to go see her today, actually. I miss her. Uh, nice. Yeah. Um, when you were talking before, um, especially about like the parts of our brains, right? Like sort of the new side, the poet side, these parts that are always you know, like as Franny was saying, like paying attention. I always wonder for folks that have been paying attention for a while, because I even feel this in myself, how we maintain our hope and our optimism in that work too, right? Because I feel like you've been like you've been writing for so long about the world and we see so, so long. Much... <laughs> oh God. Oh no. Sorry. My age is asshole no, right no. now. <laughs> but more than a long time, really. A, <laughs> a long time. A long time. I mean, yeah, you know, I like, like it. yeah. I like that. It's and okay. it's and it's deserved, you know? Like you're at the point where like people are like giving you lifetime achievements and stuff like that, right? Yeah, because they're I know, saying it's like shocking. I know. It's crazy. <laughs> Pretty but sweet, but but you've done it in a way that I think I've never read, especially like thinking about your work about Palestine and Palestinians um, and that conflict. That it's never felt hopeless. Um, there's always felt um, like a way through. Like there's a light, like and with difficulty, with violence, with reality. Um, but always, sort of, there's something I think that you're saying. Even in the patience to sit with a the poem, there is. Um, I think a spirit of hope or of light that we have to maintain. And I'm wondering how do you attend to the hope within you in order to like keep going back to these poems? Well, thank you for your comments. I appreciate them very much. And I would give the credit to other poets. You know, I know that I can read other people's poems or listen to other people saying their poems and feel like instantaneously improved. Hmm. It's like the vitamin that helps you right away. You know, sometimes simple things like, you know, you can go out and take a walk Mm -hmm. and feel better. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, you can go trim a vine and feel better. So you figure out what your hope improvement activities are Mm. and you resort to them as often as needed. I learned very young that um, it was much easier to be hopeful than not. My father the Palestinian in our family, the full Mm. Palestinian, uh, was a very hopeful man. He was never embittered. He wasn't cynical. He wasn't even too ironic. He was just like a very pure soul of hopefulness. And people would often say something a little bit 
like casting him as an outsider or a strange person. Um, you know, I grew up in Ferguson, Missouri, mm-hmm. famous place now. It wasn't when I grew up there, but it was a beautiful historic community. It was pretty segregated when I grew up there. That was disturbing to me as a child. It was disturbing to the immigrants of the neighborhood, like my dad and the Italians on one side and the French Canadians on the other. And my father was the only Arab in Ferguson. And so sometimes people would sort of single him out. Oh, you're that. Mm -hmm. And they wouldn't even know what to say next like that. And he would always intercept them and say something like, I'm that friend you haven't met yet. He Mm -hmm. would like take over the conversation if somebody was getting ready to, you know, place him as an other. Mm -hmm. And um, he just had that, that spirit all his life. And he refused to be cast as, an enemy of Jewish people. Mm -hmm. You know, some people tried to do that to him too. Like, Oh, this Arab guy, you know, well, he probably won't want to meet you because you're Jewish. And he would say, that's my brother. I'm closer to him than you are. We need to meet. So he was always kind of upbeat about human contact. Mm -hmm. And he didn't really like go looking for other Arabs to feel at home with either. And if he were alive today, I think I would ask him a little more about that. You know, how Mm. come I didn't have any Arab American friends as a child? Why didn't you go find other Arabs to be with? Uh, Anyway, I learned hopefulness from him, I would say. Mm. And then when I got to know his mother, who really had suffered living in Palestine her whole life, losing her home, constantly being oppressed by soldiers, being tear gassed when she sat in her own bedroom when she was 103 years old. I mean, come on. You don't want your grandma to be tear gassed when she's at home. It's ridiculous. So bad stuff was always happening in her vicinity. And she would just say, ah, they don't know our stories, you know, in Arabic. She would say, like, they wouldn't do that if they knew who we were. Um, But the sad thing is, come on, use your imaginations, people. You know, you know your own grandmas. Mm -hmm. You don't have to know mine. How can you treat a grandma that way? How can you treat anyone that way? Because you know what it feels like to be Mm -hmm. oppressed, anyone of you. So her optimistic spirit and my father's, they were big markers in my life. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I feel duty bound to remain hopeful for them. Yeah. Um, I wonder if we should pivot now to talking about um, the tiny journalist. Sure. We're most, well, I guess not your most recent. No, uh, Castaway is the most recent. Um, Well, no, Everything Comes Next is now even more recent. Whoa! Whoa. <laughs> I've had like four books in three years. It's when, crazy. When did that one when come When you out? stay home all the time, you can do stuff. No, I'm just kidding. When that one hit the streets. When uh, that everything one? <laughs> Comes Next is a collected in new poems. So you've probably seen most of the, oh. of the book. But there are some new ones. Is that in the world yet? Yeah, is that on shelves? It just got in the shelves. Yeah. Oh, wow. Wow, you have... You've written so many books. But The Tiny Journalist, (laughs) um, I would love to talk about The Tiny Journalist and Castaway, any of them. It was such an interesting thing to move um, in my reading this week between these two collections, which are in some ways so different. Um, Because Castaway is is specifically sort of marketed to a younger audience. Is that right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. But also The Tiny Journalist revolves around this young person. And so I feel like young people are at the center of both of these collections. Um, you know, we're, we've been talking about paying attention and we've been talking about your father. 
I read that he, was he a, a journalist? Yes. He started as a radio journalist as a young man in Jerusalem and then became a newspaper journalist. Hmm. Right. Yeah. I, I wondered, um, maybe like, what do you think that you inherited from um, that legacy of, of reportage and, um, and maybe what's the difference between that and the, and the writing that you do or the kind of writing you want to make? Yeah, I love that question, Franny. That's such a good question. Um, well, he was a question asker. He would have questions instantly for any person that he had just met. And uh, he never ran out of questions. He was so curious about things. That sense as a young child that um, we should be curious. We should always be on the lookout for something interesting and to learn more about everything. He was also concerned in journalism with what was left out of the story. He used to bring that up regularly, like, wow, I bet this story could be told from so many different perspectives. And it would trouble him. You know, he would brood mm. over it. Like he would ask me to read a story and say, when you finish reading that story, who are you thinking about? And I knew just after, you know, years of doing this with him, he was often thinking about the person who was only quoted once or the person who wasn't quoted at all, who may have had the most important perspective on the story. He was bothered by, you know, kind of party lines too, how mm -hmm. in United States newspapers, um, Israel was often presented as the good guys and Palestinians or Arabs were presented as bad people. And that was a wound to him. And he was constantly trying to work with that and write stories that would bring both peoples in as deserving of respect, humanity, dignity. So, you know, I saw these attentions of his at play every day of his life. And, you know, since I was more interested in poetry from a very young age, I just liked the kind of language of poetry and the fact that you didn't have to stick to the who, what, when, where, what, you know, the questions of journalism, that you could imagine what that person was thinking. You didn't have to really say what they were really thinking, you know, but there were those crossovers of attentive curiosity and what's another way to look at this story. If I don't like where I'm standing in this story, where might it be a better place to look at this story from? Who else's opinion could I tell the story from? My parents were grammar hounds. They both were obsessed with proper grammar. If my mother heard someone on television misusing grammar, she would somehow track down the address of that program and write them a letter and demand <laughs> that they work on their grammar skills. And then my father was the same, though, about journalism. And that used to fascinate me. Like He would put a newspaper on my breakfast place at table and say, there are three grammatical errors on this page. Find them. I mean, that was like my breakfast fun. <laughs> and I became sort of fascinated. I, I remember saying, Dad, English isn't even your number one language. How can you <laughs> see this so fast? So I was aware of that. And, you know, I think the fact that we had so many newspapers, so many mm -hmm. books, magazines everywhere in our house that was what we had. You know, we didn't have anything fancy, luxurious, but we had so mm. much to read. And I always associated the word rich, by the way, with having plenty to read. Mm. If you didn't have a new book waiting for you, that's when you were poor. 
That's the real wealth right there. Yeah. Um, pulling back to Tiny Journalists, you had called it when you were writing your pre-interview for us, you called it your most political book, which I think um, surprised me and Franny just because we think about you as a political poet in our imagination already. Um, so I'm wondering, what is that? word political for poetry mean for you? How does the tiny journalist for you, I guess, then feel more political than some of the other work you've done? And you also put it into scare quotes. Yeah, it was it was it was scare quote. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, this is such an exhausting situation in mm. Israel, Palestine. I have written about it all my writing days, especially since I was in college, I guess. But I felt tiny journalist kind of took it on most directly and I hoped it didn't feel as if it was appropriating someone else's perspective, Jana Jihad Ayad's perspective. In some ways, it was trying to include her perspective in like the generational perspective of, you know, my grandmother, my father, me, her. She's younger than my son is, so she would be almost in the grandchild era. So there could be even yet another generation in there somewhere. But that sense of a problem, just like racial inequity in the United States, which has gone on so many generations now, and we all feel the exhaustion around this issue, like people who are just now noticing it or pretending like suddenly they should pay attention to it. What's been so grievous about what goes on in Israel, Palestine is, well, I mean, it's it's another kind of grievous inequity, injustice. And anyone who tells you it isn't, Mike Pompeo, I'm talking to you. Uh, how dare you presume that you know what Palestinian life is like? How dare you act as if Israel has been just in its dealings, negotiations, navigations, with this huge group of people who have been suffering for more than 70 years. How dare you? And I feel like the city of Jerusalem, my father's home city, has been defamed in the last few years because it's, quote, a holy city. It's a place that should be uh, looked at in a different way. It's a metaphor for pious people of three different world religions. How dare you use it as a pawn in your political game and story. And so I feel insulted on behalf of Jerusalem. I feel insulted on behalf of generations such as Jenna's, the young Jenna. Jenna. She says Jenna. I've heard it different ways pronounced in interviews. Um, her generation right now growing up and what she is facing, which is very parallel to what I faced as a teenager living there. And come on, the story just has not improved. It's only gotten worse. And people need to pay better attention to it and figure it out. It's a very small parcel of land when you look at the entire range of the world's continents. And the two peoples share so many good things. And like I always mm -hmm. have really thought that Jewish people and Arab people are very quite parallel in their natures, in their humors, in their senses of loss and um, their care for family. Um, there's so much that could be gained by living in harmony together in this small terrain. Nevertheless, people who want power for themselves keep trying to manipulate the territory. So 
in this exhaustion of mine, years after my father has died, I kept watching this, this girl, Jenna, who to me represents the idealism of youth, the new hope of the next generation. It was important to me to try to extend or embrace you know, the futures of all the kids who are growing up now which I hope is what we're also doing in our country for, you know, kids growing up now. Hopefully this is a pivotal moment when we'll be able to make the future better for the people who are 10 and 14. Jenna's 14 right now. She has embraced the book. I'm happy to tell you. She has. Yes, she Amen. has. She even sent me a most gorgeous little video where she's hugging the book. And then I've been told by people who meet her, that if they bring her a copy of the book, she signs it for them. And that makes me so happy. She's a brave person. No, she's braver than a lot of persons have been over the years. And um, I wanted to honor, as well as continue this unfinished story that my father and grandmother were part of, both of them hoping to see a real turn for the better before they died. But neither one really did. And so it becomes necessary that that hope transfers to her. Yes. It's a book you couldn't have written in anybody else's voice almost, you know? Right. It had to transfer. You're right. Yeah, that's the magic part of it. It had to go to someone else's voice. And you used the word transfer. I did write a book called Transfer for my father after he died, which is also, I would say, my other most political book in some way. I didn't ever imagine writing poems in his voice, but since I was usually using his actual lines as titles in that book, the poems came out in his voice. Do you maybe have any idea of what might be that link between the persona and the political for you? What does sort of escaping uh, Naomi do for you? Well, escaping oneself is always a good thing, probably. (laughs) (laughs) But also feeling as if you can stand back from the story a little bit and talk about it, hopefully, from a perspective that's wider than your own rage and grief. You know, trying to imagine more what it was like for my father all those years being homesick for a world that you never get to live in in the same way again. What is that like? You know, I think we need to to find other perspectives, other voices, you know, for our personal refreshment. That is that is a hopeful thing, Dennis. Thank you for Saying that. Well, thank you for making it. I think um, it provides, I mean, I, it feels to me like a motive or an education for those of us who do write political work, right? Who are writing into sometimes what feels like unmoving histories, um, that there is a use in, I guess, our exhaustion and um, that we, there are also things that we can do to transfer that exhaustion into energy for the hope and for the betterment of our people. Um, uh, so I thank you for that. What a beautiful line. Transfer that exhaustion into our energy and hope for our people. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering too, um, first, congratulations. Uh, the Tiny Journalist um, won the state of Texas. Two awards. <laughs> it won both Two the awards. poetry awards. That seems incredible <laughs> to me. Right. I, I guess I wanted to ask, like, what does it mean to like win for that book in a state like Texas, which sometimes yeah, feels Texas. like the most American. Yeah, uh, right. It's the most American state, I feel like. Uh, maybe, uh, not, maybe not. <laughs> I live in the most Latinx city. Yes, so, that. Yeah. I mean, our city is so great. 
being 63% or more Latinx. And that's one thing I think attracted my father and mother here, hmm. that they like that sense hmm. of multiplicity here. Um, that is really a fact that I'm proud of, that this particular book would win both the Texas Awards. I feel grateful to the judges and very touched that they would, you know, I mean, every year there are many books of poems out of this very large state that relate a lot to Texas. So, you know, for this year, they stepped aside from that Texas persona to take um, a larger, you know, earth persona. And I, I'm, I'm so touched by that. Yeah. Also, Texas, a state that is defined by like a long and militarized border, you know, I wonder if that like creates any kind of like affinity, even sort of like subconsciously to be thinking about borders. Franny, I think you're so wise to say that because like I wondered if when they read the poem Separation Wall, Mm -hmm. I wondered if Mm -hmm. the judges were thinking about, you know, how much fighting against our wall so many of the creative people of Texas you know, we've been fighting against, we don't want this wall cutting through our beautiful bird preserves on the border and the beautiful land and the river. And we don't want that. We don't like it. It's like an insult to our state. So I wondered yeah. if there was that sort of transferal of empathy and connection that made these Texas judges say, hey, you know, let's, let's pay attention to this. Yeah, I've been thinking about this writing about the separation of the Koreas and the kind of like intensity of that, of the, of the border between North and South Korea. I don't know. I think that like doing that sort of research and writing has made me feel closer to my Palestinian friends and closer Mm. to my friends for whom like the Mexico U S border has been a source of trauma and violence. And it's a strange thing, like three different places, like such different places in the world that have this one, thing in common um i feel like it allows the psyche to travel and hmm. oh yeah that's a very important point i mean it's like similar kinds of suffering and human hmm. beings no matter their particular heritage i mean i i don't know if suffering feels that different or separation hmm. or exile or i used to love as so many people did the writer grace paley who happened to be jewish and who was a real activist for connection among peoples. And Grace used to say that she looked at politics as simply the way human beings treat one another. So if you think about that, you know, really, it's like our every move is political. Every single humdrum moment of the day, you know, you go out on the street and you wave at someone you don't know, or just every little act has a potential political undertone. Mm-hmm you were mentioning just like the intimacy within, especially within political work. You you often talk about um, the idea of trying to make your poems welcoming, which to me, uh, being somebody who like, I so strongly identify as like somebody who like accessibility is an intention in my work. And I feel like I love the word welcoming. I felt really gracious for that because I was like, oh, welcoming, so much better than accessible. So <laughs> it's such a better word. Uh, <laughs> it's a door now. And I wondered um, with um, the political nature of your work, right? Does the call towards like the politics of your work and the call to be welcoming, are those two things ever in contention or how do they feed one another? How do, how do you create a welcoming politics in your work? Um, how do those two things mix for you? Yeah. That's such a great question. I love your questions. Um 
when you think about politics, if you think that's, those are people over there, you know, these are human beings. They're having the same kind of human experiences that any of us are having. And we don't make these monolithic, like against you, against us um, mm-hmm. attitudes. And, and I do think that's really hard in the United States these days, because I could look at the daily news and say, what the hell is going on here? What do you think you're doing? You can't just keep being so dismissive of the reality of American democracy. Oh, government in power. I keep wanting to get away from whatever kind of, oh, disappointment. I lost the election. I mean, come on, let's buckle up. If you were in high school, we'd all be laughing at you. How are you acting this way? But um, I think that's what, I don't know. I think it's what our job is as poets to try to keep finding a way to engage with them in our poems, whether the political poems or the walking down the street, easy poems. That's part of our job to remember, to remind, you know, what difference does power and money really make? in the big picture, these are human beings and how they're feeling and they have memories and so forth. Um, Some kind man, I don't know, wrote me an email this morning, someone in my city who said that he's remembering a poem I read at the library like five or 10 years ago that was about a conversation I had with a postal worker at the post office. And I hadn't thought of that poem in years, but I felt so charmed that this person would take the time to track me down just he said, I just really want to tell you, I've thought about that poem all these years. That was so touching to me. It was like a double act of humanity that he listened to the poem back then and then found me in this other period of life to, to say something about it. So I don't know. I think, you know, we can think of poems by other people. I think of W.S. Merwin's thank you poems, which have were written like as litanies of gratitude to the world. And I think of those as like some of the most humanizing testimonials I need in my life during these difficult days. Just to remember to be grateful that I was born at all. Just to remember that I do have food or that I could get food. Just to not be completely alone in the world, that I have people around me that I can still see and you know, be within arm's length of. I don't know. I'm just jabbering now. Then as one of my many worst habits. You do a good jabber though. It's a it's a good solid. But it's like this like run on sound jabber. I always got that R O <laughs> written on my papers in college. R O R O R O. Run on, run on, run on. Yeah, I'm sorry. But your question was way better than my answer. So let's just go with your question. Maybe you should ask the question again. Okay. So the short version of the question, I think, is um, do the calls towards your politics and a call to like sort of be welcoming or let's say to like engage your audience, mm-hmm. however you choose to engage them, do they feel in conflict or how do they feed each other? I, I think that sometimes I wonder like, oh, what good is any of the smartness if it doesn't reach anyone? You know? Mm-hmm. Wow. But then other times I think like, there are things that I'm, I'm trying to say that are difficult to say and difficult to think that if I try to be so concerned about whether or not I'll be understood, then I'm worried that I won't be able to get to the best version of the thought. Hmm. And so I think that there's like, 
for me, it's just like a, a constant back and forth between those mm-hmm. between those things. Right. You know? I love that answer because it just makes me think. I always tell my students, like, you got to write all the poems. What do you mean by that? I mean that you have to write it as many ways as possible, right? So, like, they're kind of, like, thinking about, like, oh, I don't know if I should do it this way, right? Like, I don't know if I wanted, like, to do this thing that feels more stylistic or cool or inventive to myself. Or I don't know if I want to, like, do what you're saying, which is, like, sort of be understood maybe in a way that doesn't allow you to reach the most athletic version of the thought or something like that maybe Mm -hmm. and i was telling them like then you gotta write all of it right you gotta write it multiple times so that way you can say it just the way it needs to be said one time and another time you can delight maybe in the strangeness and in the weirdness or in in another corner of what the poem is doing and i don't know if that's the answer to this question but for me that feels like maybe just a a charge towards what you were saying is like that frustration means that i think you have to find the many doors and windows into it right dennis i love that you said doors and windows Because to me, doors and windows are welcoming. And Mm -hmm. I want a poem to have many doors and windows. And I have never had any interest in writing poems that would perplex people too much because life does that enough with us. You know, not that I'm against mystery or the unknown. I love those things. I want the poems to welcome those things too. Now we are going to play a game that we sometimes like to call fast punch and sometimes like to call speed bag. But the idea is that we are going to give you 10 categories of things and then you will tell us either the best or the worst thing in that category, um, depending on whether you want to be a lover or a hater. The only objective of the game is to try to answer quickly. So do you, Naomi, do you want to say the best of things or the worst of things? Definitely the best. Okay, You cool. have an optimist. Right, yeah, optimist on board. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, Denise, do you want to start? I will start us off. Naomi, give me the best age of childhood. Ooh, ooh. Uh, three. Best sandwich. Ooh, I would say tuna fish. Just a tuna fish, not a tuna melt? A tuna melt would be great if you have that. (laughs) I don't eat meat, but I'm sorry, tuna. All right, best human sense to use in poetry. Well, I would say visual. Mm. Um, Best place to read a book in San Antonio. Ooh, sitting in my cozy bed. (laughs) Best drink. Oh, gin and tonic, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, best scent of soap or candle? Ooh, um, frankincense, maybe? Mmm, yeah. yes. Best poem in the morning? Ooh, anything by W.S. Merwin. Best plant in your garden right now? Oh, I would say my Maria Christina... Tiny little roses. Oh, wow. And it's a very huge, gigantic bush, and the roses are very tiny and pink. And they bloom over and over and over again throughout the year. It's the most insatiable bush. Mm. <laughs> All right. Best person to talk to? Connor James Nye, age four. Oh. <laughs> Last one is best of your own book titles. Wow. Um, I'm going with the tiny journalist because I really like the word tiny. Yeah, yeah. And also I really love and appreciate journalists. Thank you, United States journalists, world journalists, 
for all the insight you have given us into the madness of the years we have been living through. You won the game. You won. Hooray. <laughs> no, but I like that. That was kind of fun to do. Yeah, but I feel, I'm feeling guilty because the best place to read a book, I should have picked a place that other people could also read a book, not just, you know, because obviously I don't want other people coming in and sitting in my bed to read a book. I would say anywhere along the incredibly gorgeous San Antonio River Walk is a magnificent mm. place to read a book. And there are so many benches and stone walls and little grassy slopes and wild places where you could take a book and read it. And we're very lucky to have this treasure. It's, a, it's half a block behind my house, but it stretches 15 miles through the city. We're lucky to have that. Oh, that's so cool. Oh, that's wow. So good. Love a river so walk. Beautiful. Love a river walk. Also, what is it about reading by water? It's got that lull. Reading kind mm. of flows into your brain. Your thoughts start mm. flowing a different way. And that peacefulness of sitting by the water. It just, it's so wonderful. We don't do that enough. Yeah. Okay, let's play our second game. And this is the fist fight. This versus that. Okay. Yes. Yeah, this is the violent one. <laughs> All right. <laughs> So now we've come to our oldest and most storied game on the show, <laughs> This Versus That. Many great defeats and wins in, the, in this here game. Um, so we're going to give you two concepts, things, places, you know, nouns. And you tell us who would win in a round of fisticuffs. Um, so for today, in this corner, we have kid brain. And in that corner, we have adult brain. Who wins in a fight? Without a doubt, I'm calling it for the kid. The kid wins. Because yes. adults, we're too distracted. We let all this stuff in. We're overwhelmed with knickknacks in the brain. All this stuff is moving around in there. The kid is like, why are you late? Where have you been? What is your problem? Why do you look sad? The kid is straight to the heart. Mm. And the kid brain, for me, will always carry us someplace true. I'm going with the kid. Mm. Not even a contest. <laughs> I think that that fight might have been a little bit rigged on our part. Yeah, we yeah. Were... <laughs> and don't you think, I think it's very gracious of both of you not to bring up the humorous detail that I am for the Poetry Foundation, young people's poet laureate, yet I'm old. I think that's really <laughs> funny. I like having, I, I said in the beginning when my friend said, what, you're what? I said, well, some people will do anything to have the word young. <laughs> but I said, no, seriously, it's a position and they kindly invited me to do it. And yeah, I'm lucky that I get to be in the kid venue more hmm. thanks to that worthy position. And I just want to be in service to kids any way I can be. You know, I've tried to encourage kids for my entire working adult life, being with kids now through Zoom or all over the country or in a high school in Maine or tomorrow morning at 7.30 a.m. in Palestine. That's my job. That's what I do. I love it. How amazing. You know, one thing I've determined during our conversation is I wish I were on a train with both of you and we were just going and we had some little food sacks and we could share what was in our food sacks and drink that ice cold water and 
do this and that quizzes as we passed different landscapes. Oh, one day. <laughs> yeah. That sounds really nice. Let's go on a trip. Okay. Let's let's do a trip. That's my secret want. I've never been on a train for like longer than like an hour or so. So like that's one of my like oh, secret. really? Yeah, that's one of my secret wants is to do like a cross the country train trip. Seems like so fun. Yeah. Yeah. Let's do it. Franny Danez, I feel like the luckiest person to get to be with you. Oh, oh God. We feel so lucky Thank and like you. like what a what a better last episode of the season. Like what like just oh, thank yeah. you so much for like coming out. Like it feels oh, I'm about to cry right now. But like to like I don't know. I'm grateful to this show right now, I guess, because we get to have these interactions with our legends and like with with people like I don't know. So it's like so weird just to be like to thank you for saying those nice things about us and to like be able to like sit at your Zoom feet for the last like little bit has been. Well, just you are just the greatest. <laughs> thank you so much. Naomi, will you do us the honor of closing us out with one last poem? I would love to and I opened to tattoo mm. from the tiny journalist. When I hear about forgotten people, I think They are not forgotten by me. I knew the man down the alley by the market who dragged his leg. He was out there smoking almost my whole life. His blue tattered pants, the small denim pouch like a pocket around his neck. It didn't make sense, but he was always smiling. If you nodded at him or not, chattering words to a patient's prayer, over and over. It sounded more like Aramaic than Arabic. He seemed happier to drag somewhere, the short stone wall under the trees, than people who find it easy to get there. On his arm, the tattoo of a skinny blue moon. He said it was the moon People like least, so he was going to like it most. Fingernail flicker, little boat, holy symbol without the star. Are you going to get a tattoo? He used to tease the kids. We all said, no, but he is tattooed on my mind since he disappeared. He rises in the darkest sky. Tell me fucking she have nine, y'all. Yeah, <laughs> fucking she have nine. Oh my god, what a presence! I don't know. I'm really kind of you know humbled after all the nice things she said and after all the nice things she like is. And <laughs> yeah, I feel like a you know kind of giddy, you know. <laughs> totally, and I feel like she is one of those poets that just like deeply listens and like is deeply interested in what you have to say. You can tell that she works with kids and that she loves to work with kids because, like, we're not children, but like, we might as well be to. I mean, I don't know. Like, I'm like Naomi, 12. Naomi is like our senior, you know, in the field. And for her to listen to our answers to her questions and be like, wow, that's so great. That's so interesting. Yeah. I was like, wow, Naomi, like, you. I- I don't is it like that's so cool. well that's that that's so. that that's that welcoming thing in the poems too right totally. 
feels like we've kind of talked to like some heroes of kindness this season. You know? That's <laughs> like, true. <laughs> Speaking of um, caring about what the young people think, what do you think child Denez thinks of adult Denez's poems? First of all, okay, one, that nigga cusses too much, and I like that. <laughs> two, <laughs> two is a little nasty, and I also like that. Three, <laughs> I think like seven year old Denez was just impressed that we could read. And so, <laughs> seven year old Denez is like, nigga, what you writing to? Whole books? <laughs> <laughs> Seven-year-old Denez is just proud to be here, man. <laughs> it's an honor just to be reading. <laughs> it's an honor to be reading. <laughs> uh, okay, ninth grade, like fresh, like into poetry, still is excited to get a journal for Christmas, Denez. Mm-hmm. Um, I think is in shock that we're talking about ourselves in public so much, Uh, (laughs) but proud that we're able to do that. Maybe doesn't understand why we're not a stand-up comedian, but is happy that, (laughs) but it's just, once again, I think just happy to be there. (laughs) Um, No, I think, yeah, I think I would like my poems um, when I was a kid. I think my poems would have made it a lot easier to be me earlier. So I hope that little me would feel, feel a little freer reading stuff now, yeah. I think that ninth grade Francis would be like so relieved actually to know that like we had been able to make something out of oversharing, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like <that> we'd like really worked on these oversharing skills and it was being well received. Like that's so, <laughs> that would be so impressive. Um, and I think that like my, ninth grade self would mm-hmm. really love my first book mm. and would be confused by my second and then maybe be like found again by the third book. This is an on-air live realization that is happening right now, but that makes me love my first book a little better, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So shout out to ninth grade me for yeah. showing me that. Oh, that now nice. I'm getting sappy. I'm just, I'm just in, I'm just in the, in I was in the kindness mode. I know. Okay. Yeah, it's okay. true. You know, it's 3 p.m. The sun is setting. Like I'm getting nostalgic. Oh no. <laughs> oh, let's thank some people and go cry. Yeah, let's let's do it. I'm gonna thank the poets as a big group. Just thank you for continuing to write, to look at the world, to challenge it, to find goodness within it. You know, even on a personal note, like in a year where it's been very hard to write, it's been very good to read still. And so I've been very like uh, appreciative that there are so many, so, so, so many folks doing what they do best, which is their poems. I don't know. Shout out to everybody who's just out here like writing their good shit. It's nice to be fans of the genre and to be fans of the work that everybody's making. Shout out. We also want to thank our producer, Daniel Kissinger. Thank you, Itzel Blancas and Ida Minoriega at the Poetry Foundation. Um, thank you to Post Loudness. Um, thank you to you, uh, listeners, for staying with us through a whole fourth season. Thank you for staying. Thank you for coming. We'll see you next time. Make sure you follow us on social media at BS the Podcast. Make sure you take a social media break if you fucking need to. Uh, <laughs> um, and make sure that you like, rate, and subscribe wherever you may listen to podcasts. And make sure, most of all, that you take care of yourself 
put a little kindness and a little goodness into the world whenever you can as much as possible thank y'all so much take care of yourselves have a good new year we love you we love you stay safe bye, bye.